ATYT Politics, I'm Nomi Konst. We are here live at The Nation, The Nation Magazine, the headquarters in New York City with the editor-in-chief of The Nation, Katrina Vanden Heuvel. It's a 152-year-old publication, yes, I just learned. Yes. Very progressive. I'm sure you've been following The Nation for years if, if, if you're uh, on our channel. <laughs> um, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Happy to be with you. Happy to be with you. So you have, um, you're the editor-in-chief of The Nation, and... This is a really unique moment in history uh, for progressives. Yes. And you're at the forefront of it. You're, you're overseeing the content, the conversations. You have reporters out there on the trail covering uh, the latest events in politics, yeah. but especially within the Democratic Party and the progressive movement. Yes, yeah. Let's, let's just start. What, what's happening with the Democratic Party? Where do you, where do you see it That's going? a great question, <laughs> Naomi. That's a great... You know, listen, I mean, I sometimes think we're a poorer country than some because we have two parties, two mm -hmm. ma major parties. But until we have really serious structural reforms, I think at the national level, we got to work with the party we have, the Democratic Party. But what we need to do is build, it seems to me, on what we've seen in the last year or so, the energy of the Bernie Sanders campaign mm -hmm. and what has followed our revolution, but not just our revolution, a kind of progressive infrastructure, not a sexy term, but mm -hmm. real. I mean, you have People's Action, you have Our Revolution, you have Working Families Party, D Democracy for America. Mm -hmm. I mean. You, you know, you have a whole parcel of groups now working with the millions who supported Bernie Sanders to understand that there is within the Democratic Party an ascendant, bold, populist wing. Mm -hmm. And it's that wing that demands nurturing, demands attention. So we are in a period of resistance. We can't mm -hmm. ignore that. Mm -hmm. But what I say and what we've been writing at The Nation is you can't just fall back to restoration. Mm -hmm. You need reconstruction and you need not to be just Democrats in name only, but to build out a bold, inclusive, populist program that speaks to struggling Americans, that speaks to millions of people who seek uh, a different way forward, who seek an alternative. And they've seen it, a system that is de-rigged of big money mm -hmm. politics, uh, ideas that have percolated and come to the fore as a result of not just Sanders' campaign, but other campaigns, mm -hmm. Fight for 15, mm -hmm. Uh, green jobs for all, the infrastructure, free higher ed, Medicare mm -hmm. for all. I mean, these are things that the nation has fought for right. for years. And too often we're told that we've been utopian. But I think what we need to do now, because the Democratic Party to some extent is nationally in the wilderness. We mm -hmm. got to fight in 2018 and beyond. But to make what might seem politically impossible, politically inevitable. Mm -hmm. And that demands organizing. That demands serious ideas work and in the trenches work. So, uh, listen, you're involved in some of it on the Reform Commission. Mm -hmm. The Democratic Party needs fundamental reform, mm -hmm. fundamental change. So, uh, having covered the Democratic Party extensively, and, and now it seems like there's some movement by some in the Democratic establishment, for lack of yeah. better terms, um, to make progress. You see Senator Schumer and Senator Gillibrand coming forward and saying, we need to talk about economics. Medicare for all is something yeah. that Senator Gillibrand is for. And she's from this, the Wall Street state, as we yeah. sit here in New York. Yeah. Uh, you have this new concept of, of a better deal. Right. What do you think of the, the better deal that they're talking about? You know, what you just said, I think what's important is, and this is where I try to wake up every morning and say, we're moving forward. Mm -hmm. You can sit back as some of our friends do and say it's all half empty. Mm -hmm. I like to think we're on the road. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet, but a better deal. I would have thought of, you know, something catchier, more passionate, <laughs> more feisty. But you do see the power of the social movements mm -hmm. and those in the wing of the Democratic Party 
moving those along who you wouldn't have thought could be brought along, right? That's, I'm, I, I believe and the nation has long believed that fundamental change in our country comes from social movements mm -hmm. and the allies inside. I have had arguments with friends and colleagues for years. Electoral politics, you don't give up on electoral politics mm -hmm. because you need those allies inside to drive the agenda, and that's what we're seeing. I just wrote a column the other day about a better deal. Okay, but let's not forget the People's Platform right. also came out. People's Platform, your viewers should check it out. I mean, it's more out of the Progressive Caucus, a good group inside the House. Keith Ellison was co-chair. Mark Pocan of Wisconsin mm -hmm. is now there. Pramila Jayapal, wonderful legislator from Seattle. They've really laid out, it seems to me, the best of what was in the DNC, the Democratic Party platform, and moving it. So mm -hmm. I think we take lessons from all. I'm not one to say, better deal doesn't do enough, let's put it aside. I want to say, let's nurture it, let's mm -hmm. push for more, but let's not ignore that progress has been made. So uh, in terms of the better deal, for the, for the Democrats, the elected Democratic leaders who have put this forward and are on board, um, are they the allies and are, are there... Are there dividing lines? Are they the people who are going to be able to uh, speak to others in the Democratic Party that might be more conservative, like um, Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia? I mean, I guess what I'm really asking is, if we have a Democratic Party platform, that's one thing. But when all the Democrats are not on board with the platform, that's another thing. How do you get all of those folks to be on board with the platform if it's progressive? Very tough. I think we need to fight where we can fight. Mm -hmm. We need to fight the strategic inroads build out as best we can. I think we, I often, you know, I often wake with more questions than answers. This is not a time for, you know, certainties, though I am certain about core values and mm -hmm. principles, but it is the case that this is a vast country mm -hmm. with regional differences, but we need to fight hard to strengthen the support mm -hmm. for this core principle-based platform, mm -hmm. understanding that some will migrate off a little um, I think there's some core principles. I mean, I speak, uh, and I think you tweeted this the other day, I mean, economic rights or women's rights, uh, I think that's very important, you know? And I think um, that you, you try to not make it, it's not about a litmus test. I think those who go on about litmus tests are trying to back off a principle mm -hmm. because principle is involved here. But there's no question that it's not a unified Democratic Party. It's unified around core things. And I think we need to build on that. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I wish I had a, you know, clearer response, but it's still murky. I do think, and then you spoke to this the other day, I, you know, how, how many conversations have you been in? I've been in too many where people say, what's your list for 2020? Right. Right? <laughs> exactly you know, it. what's your list? And I say, please, first of all, it's sexy, it's fun, it's a, you know, game. But we need to fight not only for 2018, but 2017 into 2018. We've lost an enormous amount at the state level. Um, someone I like and admire, Eric Schneiderman, the mm -hmm. Attorney General of New York, wrote a piece for us when they go, you know, when they go low, we go local, and we have to, we have to really build. Mm -hmm. And my colleague John Nichols wrote a good piece a few weeks ago after all of this anxiety and hand-wringing about how we'd lost these special elections. We came close. I mean, mm -hmm. there is winning and losing sometimes, but people weren't paying attention to the real down-ballot races. Christine Pellegrino, 9th Assembly District here in New Hampshire, there was a good win. Mm -hmm. Philadelphia District Attorney is going to be really progressive district attorney. So there, there are wins out there that I think are important for people to know about because mm -hmm. when people, they need wins. Mm -hmm. They need wins. I mean, they may be what I call sweet victories. They're not going to resolve the crises of our time in one fell swoop. 
But to mobilize people, you need to bring them into a sense of moving forward. Uh, some of the leaders in the establishment and surrogates, those who are out there um, speaking on behalf of the, the establishment, you know, the centrist Democrats, um, would say, well, you know, it's one thing to have these progressive principles. It's, it's the purity test principles. But, you know, fundamentally, we have to compete with the Republicans. And to compete with Republicans, you need an extraordinary amount of money. And so the answer has been, I saw Joy Reid tweet this out uh, a couple of days ago, host on MSNBC. She said, you know, all Democrats take corporate money. All Democrats take Wall Street money. You have to be able to compete, something like that. And, and this is, a, I think that, the, you know, the divide in the Democratic Party really comes down to Wall Street. You look at charter schools. Charter schools are owned and supported by hedge funders, invested in by hedge funders. That is a dividing issue when it comes to Democrats um, who are getting elected. Are you, a, are you a charter school Democrat or are you a union Democrat? And, and ultimately, I mean, I see that's, it's, it comes down to Wall Street versus union. How do we make sure that we as progressives can push back and say, maybe we don't need that much money, or if we do, we have it somewhere else? This is a really important question uh, and problem. Bernie was able to break free of the corporate money lock. Mm -hmm. He ran a major presidential campaign despite the media gatekeepers. He had all the attention and the $27. All of that became a great alternative to the corporate money game. Tougher for certain kinds of Candidates, I mean, they don't have the visibility. But I do think it's not, I, I, I respect what you said. I'm not sure it's as simple as Wall Street versus unions. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a set of lobbying pressures. It's lobbyists. Mm -hmm. It's not, Wall Street is part of it. But mm -hmm. there are moneyed interests around this country right. that go beyond Wall Street, which is obviously a good Pardon. symbol. Um, but I do think that is the divide, and I think the political revolution Bernie Sanders spoke of mm -hmm. was ultimately how you take on a rig system that has been rigged by big money, corporate money, Wall Street money. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet, but I do think um, some of it is also taking on consultants. Some of it is taking on this industrial... Speaking my language, lady. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the industrial yeah. media consultant complex because consultants are expensive, and they advise you to do certain things. There's an homogenization, mm -hmm. homogenization that leads to less innovative, creative, radical approaches. Mm -hmm. We keep thinking of the day that the internet shall set us free because it will be less costly. We need to make campaigns less costly. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think Democrats do need to compete for money, but try to maintain the integrity and speak out against the interest even while taking them. The charter school divide is a different one. Mm -hmm. That is where you truly see the influence of Wall Street money. And I think that's an interesting divide which hasn't been explored enough. Right. Especially um, in New York. Especially I mean, in New York where you have the biggest hedge funders. I mean, there's something strange about these hedge. I mean, there's, they're trying to do good. but So I think the money piece is, is, is big. But I think we need to keep pushing on candidates to speak out against the money and the corrosion of money. Elizabeth um, Warren. Warren, I mean, you know, she's raised a lot of money. She's mm -hmm. careful how she raises the money. But she, I think, in this moment, this kind of transitional, tectonic moment, mm -hmm. candidates speak, speaking out and not taking positions in sync with big money, that's what's key in ensuring they don't. Um, but it's, um, there's certainly, um, a need to de-link from Wall Street. 
and it helps them uh, maybe not for every situation but and take on Wall Street I mean and right. challenge Wall Street and expose Wall Street I mean what Bernie Sanders said is true every day in these last weeks I mean the model of Wall Street remains fraud That's exactly a right. and I think that needs to be shouted out from the rooftops and there's no question that we're going to lose on the money front the Republicans will always be on the side of the big corporations mm -hmm. of Wall Street in ways deeper than Democrats. Mm -hmm. But we have not shown how in, we need to show which side we're on. Mm -hmm. And that's why the better deal, by the way, wasn't as strong as it might have been because it's still tasked and tied to this idea that the answer is better skills. Right. There wasn't enough about empowering workers. There wasn't enough about ensuring the rights of labor, of rebuilding mm -hmm. labor unions, even if it's not in a traditional sense. But that's vital. That's vital. And that's what the Republicans And monopoly power. Monopoly power, exactly. Monopoly power is a new issue in some ways, very old issue, mm -hmm. Theodore Roosevelt, et cetera. But it's good that the Democrats and Chuck Schumer, et cetera, are coming back to it in ways that need to be built on. But taking on corporate power is something, for example, Zephyr Teachout, who I hope will run again, ran unsuccessfully for Congress, but is a force and the best of the Democratic Party, uh, understands and puts in the context of rebuilding people power. And it goes to say that, you know, it's not just that Senator Schumer is putting forth this this better deal. He's the Wall Street senator, and he's in charge of the campaign committee for the Senate. So that means that if, if, if we can move him that much Absolutely. on that, maybe he's thinking of, of, of fundraising in a different way. And just to be clear, the DSCC is separate from the DNC, but it's related. The fundraising pieces. I mean, you know, I mean, it's an arms yeah. race. Yep. It's an arms race. Every election is... Uh, now, we have a cover story next week about women who marched the day after the inauguration and are now running. Right. And they are being assisted in different ways by groups which, you know, Emily's List at its best builds out a pipeline. At mm -hmm. its worst, it does feed into an establishment election game. Mm -hmm. And so there need to be new groups that form maybe locally at first and then grow that support candidates in different ways. And mm -hmm. some of the groups I mentioned earlier do that, Working Families Party, People's Action, they are electoralizing the resistance right. based on work they've done in the trenches, in communities over years. And there's trust that's built, and that's vital. Mm -hmm. I think it's trust and community and validation by peers which may overcome and trump uh, mm -hmm. money. So it's interesting you say that. Um, I, I, the Nation was at the Democratic Socialists of America conference in Chicago. I was there this past weekend. And what I found so fascinating about it is well, other than the fact that they've been able to grow um, quite a bit in the past year, and it's a, it's a much younger Democratic Socialist than it was, you know, two years ago, where the average age was like 64, I believe, and now it's 32. Um, with that being said, one of the things that I kept hearing over and over about why they were successful um, at this conference, that, that there was so much organization and the voting and they were able to elect delegates, was because there was that infrastructure in place that had been there for 30 years, like Working Families Party, like DFA, Democracy of America, which has been operating for you know, 12 years or so at this point. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting moment because I respect that there's suspicion of institutions. Mm -hmm. There's distrust and mm -hmm. mistrust. But it's also a moment where institutions which have worked hard in bad times, not so bad now, good times now, bad times, are needed. Mm -hmm. I think particularly uh, we have a monthly conversation series at The Nation. Anthony Romero was sitting here mm -hmm. just a few weeks ago. The ACLU marks its 100th anniversary mm -hmm. in 2020. Think of it now. It has evolved in important ways. It's redefining itself, but it is at the forefront of right. legal and other resistance. 
Planned Parenthood mm -hmm. marked its 100th anniversary. It has evolved and is an important organization mm -hmm. on many fronts. The nation, 152 years, you mentioned Working Families Party. So I think it's, it's a, it's a, if institutions can maintain the trust, mm -hmm. work for the trust of new generations, mm -hmm. that infrastructure is valuable. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to build in a minute. And if you have an infrastructure and an organization, you can do good things with it. You can do bad things with it, too. But I think in general, it's maybe a play can be, you know, to play with this a little so that those who distrust institutions understand you need to make some distinctions. And, you know, finding the right institution that's willing to bend and put its ear to the ground and understand where things are going. Exactly. And listen, and not just speak from above mm -hmm. and not be authoritarian. Uh, but listen to its members and work with them and grow from them. So speaking of that, yeah. the Democrats have had a lot of pushback because they haven't, maybe before the better deal, uh, they hadn't been putting their ear to the ground and listening to the concerns of, of their base. In fact, all many were hearing was Russia, 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 Trump is bad, Russia, Russia. You just came back from Russia. You are married to an expert on, on Russian politics and you yourself have know quite a bit. Are the Democrats playing the Russia card a little bit too much? I think the Democrats are playing the Russia card too much. Uh, I think there are legitimate issues that need investigation. Mm -hmm. But I think the overemphasis on Russia has allowed the Democratic Party to not explore some of the deeper reasons mm -hmm. why the election turned out the way it did. And I think um, the other danger is we're entering into a new Cold War, Mm. And we're in it now, I think, mm. in the last weeks. And I respect that there is, you know, concern about Trump and his ties to Russia. But we need um, a working partnership with Russia to resolve mm. some of the crises. I mean, we are sleepwalking into a new nuclear era with all the attendant dangers mm -hmm. um, escalating, uh, resolving the crisis in Syria, which is destabilizing Europe. Uh, resolving, a, you know, what's happening in the Middle East. So I think the danger is that there are people in Flint who wonder, like, why are the Democrats spending so much time on Russia mm -hmm. and not enough on what's going on in my community? I think that's changed mm -hmm. a little. There is a sense on the Democrats' part of overreach. Chris Murphy, good senator from mm -hmm. Connecticut, was on TV about a month ago saying, hey, you know, devote 10% of your time to calling for investigation into Russia. But let's let's remember what what's going on with healthcare. Yeah. What's going on with the rollback of regulations on clean air and water? So I think the balance has been badly off, mm -hmm. abetted by media, cable news. They see the ratings. Right. This, you know, listen. It's much sexier palace intrigue, scandal, Russia, mm -hmm. than it is to look at some of the hardcore policy mm -hmm. disasters. And to some extent, the Republicans benefit from this, too, because those ugly moves that are being made in the dead of night were being made in the dead of the night without the coverage demanded. So I think, listen, I've been going, and the last thing I'd say is I've been going to Russia for more than 30 years. I've worked with feminist groups there, NGOs, uh, independent media. Cold wars are bad for progressives. They fatten military and defense right. budgets. They empower war parties on both sides. They close space for dissent, for transnational solidarity. I've seen it firsthand, sort of in the first Cold War. 
And so I'd, I'd simply say I think what this country demands is at least a debate about mm -hmm. where we're heading, which we've had at different times. There was a group, I wrote a column this week, there's a group that just formed called Alliance for Securing Democracy, which is a coalition between neocons like Bill Kristol and liberal interventionists like Jake Sullivan, who oh was goodness. Hillary Clinton's close uh, national security right. advisor. This is not healthy, and the danger is what we saw in the campaign where neocons migrating to the Democratic Party because mm -hmm. they were repulsed rightly by Trump, but now they're going to corrode the Democratic Party, it seems to me. So all I'd say is we desperately need an alternative national security. It sounds a little bit too ponderous, but we do. We need a different approach to the world, and I would like to see the Democrats find a way. Chris Murphy's done some work. Rohana, right. who's a new... Uh, congressman. congressman. He's said some good things. And I just would like to see, Barbara Lee has bought into the Russia piece a little bit, but she's great on authorization to use military force, and I will always bow down to her for her courage in that vote she made in 2001. But let us I'd like to see more emphasis on alternatives, on diplomacy, on dialogue, and not posturing and moralism and triumphalism. That's, that's actually a fascinating point, that the neocons, because of their distrust of Trump, have come over to the Democratic Party at a time when the Democratic progressive base is larger than it's ever been. So there's this very deep divide. We saw it at the convention. We saw it at the convention. And the danger here, too, is a divide between the progressive base, to some extent, and the Democratic Party right. establishment, which is has been a liberal interventionist. Right. I mean, it was there for Libya, regime change, and many of them voted for Iraq. So I think it's worth paying attention to this this coalition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what Trump did was affect a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. And it's worth remembering the neocons were kind of as horrified on some level as Democrats. I, I read a tweet, I believe, and I, I can't recall who tweeted it, so I apologize if they're watching, yeah. <laughs> um, that... When the Red Scare happened yes. in the United States, the last time we went through a Red Scare um, in the you know 50s, income inequality was not what it's at today. Yep. It I was much it was, more stable. It was part of the, what Paul Krugman has called, I think, the Great Compression, mm. where you had a narrowing. No, that was a time where there's a little bit of nostalgia, too much right. about this period, where you know you had strong manufacturing, you had a strong working class, white. Right. You had, uh, you know, lots of racism mm -hmm. in the water, Absolutely. in the air. But on the other hand, the inequality was at a different level. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we also, the, the Soviet Union is over. It's not a red scare now. It's a different, it's, it's about, it's, I think it's about a triumphalism. It's about being challenged in the mm -hmm. world. It's about tectonic shifts in our society, economy, and global posture. And I, it's, you know, it's a very complicated time. And the Russia element, I think, to some extent, allows people an easy excuse. And instead of deeper mm -hmm. examination of the shifts and what could be America's role in the world, we're now back into this kind of Cold War. And the complicity of a media political elite mm -hmm. is staggering. Well, what shocks me about this is that it's not... The Democrats are just as close to Russia and the oligarchs as, as the Republicans are. You look at New York City, and you know we, we, we have this war on Airbnb in New York City right. for raising rental costs, but the real story here is Russia's been using our real estate as cash cows for as banks. No, the Russian oligarchs have bought up major pieces of real estate, and uh, until Bill de Blasio enacted some small, right. pied, Very pied small. terror, you know, uh, uh, 
they're getting off like bandits. But the real scandal is that in the 90s, uh, the looting of Russia right. by oligarchs was abetted by uh, many Americans. Mm -hmm. um, I hate to say it because I admire him now. It's interesting. I do believe in redemption and repentance. But Jeffrey Sachs, <laughs> Jeffrey Sachs, <laughs> who I really I think has played a good role in these last years, you know, he and two or three others played a role in shock therapy, which Naomi Klein, mm -hmm. our mm -hmm. longtime contributor, has written about, which looted and impoverished a country. So there's a lot of talk now about oligarchs mm -hmm. and the role of oligarchs and the ties to oligarchs. But no one is, I mean, we are, I think, but no one is fully innocent in the political mm -hmm. elite class. And by the way, no one is fully innocent in the lobbying class because mm -hmm. Paul Manafort is odious. Time. Odious. But, you know, Tony Podesta mm -hmm. has With also represented Ukraine as a, a lobbyist. Doubt. So yes. that this, I think there's a selective injustice of selection. Mm -hmm. um, and, in, you know, it's an indictment. It's, it should be an indictment of a discredited establishment. And that's where I hope we can find a way forward because sometimes I worry, but it doesn't seem like it's the case. You were just in Chicago, DSA, mm -hmm. People's Summit was wonderful beginning of June. The concern I have sometimes is that it looks so dirty and corrupt out there that young people get right. turned off and right. tune out. But I don't think that's happening. I think that there is a strong element of the resistance mm -hmm. in the DNA and that there's a fight back that isn't uh, connected to the corrosion, mm -hmm. which does afflict too much of our politics. So what I find fascinating about this generation um, in fighting back, you know, maybe maybe a little bit different than previous generations, is that um, because of technology, uh, you know, we're on we're online right now. We're live. We're, this is TYT. This is an entire network where a generation is tapped into our network rather than the traditional mainstream cable outlets where there is a control of narrative. Um, you know, you're traditionally, I mean, I remember the first time I went on air and talked about Bernie Sanders, I had been going on cable news a long time, but Bernie Sanders normalized challenging campaign finance reform or putting forward campaign finance reform and and the cable monopolies. And I remember saying that on air, thinking, oh, they're never going to have me back on. And they had me on the next day because of Bernie Sanders. But the second that Bernie Sanders was no longer in the race, suddenly, you know, a whole space is, space is closed. Exactly. My history's a little different. I mean, I'm been... I remember doing Chris Matthews' Sunday show many, many years ago, and um, it was around the time of the Iraq War, and I, mm. I called the Iraq War a war of aggression. I might have reworded it, preemptive, would, and David Gregory stood up, all six foot five, yeah. and how dare you say that? Anyway, I was invited back on, but that period was also wow. a period where there was testing. Uh, Bernie definitely opened space. Mm -hmm. So did some others. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, mm -hmm. but no one I mean, takes a presidential campaign. But just think of it. It was open for a brief period of time, but the cable networks and corporate media mm -hmm. didn't have much use for Bernie Sanders, as we were talking about. I don't think cable elected Donald Trump, but it certainly abetted his rise because he was entertainment. Right. Entertainment, sensationalism, that has been the hallmark of cable news for a long period of time. The obliteration of the line between entertainment and news abetted Donald Trump. So mm -hmm. you had his rallies unfiltered, mm -hmm. just the endless coverage where Bernie was getting the same number of people, same passion and enthusiasm, maybe deeper. Nada. I have, I have a quick story about that. I remember I was um, at the Bernie rally down in, in Washington Square Park in New York, and I had to leave because CNN called me to the studio to talk about the Republican primary and Trump. And I sat there and we had a screen I was staring at, empty empty podium of a Trump rally, 
And I'm going, I'm literally Just running leaving. from thousands <laughs> of people, people cheering and listening to serious ideas. So, but, but the thing that's encouraging is that Bernie Sanders was able to break through the barriers set by establishment media mm -hmm. gatekeepers yeah. and speak to people directly. So there was a hunger for what he was saying mm -hmm. that transcended, overtook. What we do know is that it is a corporate media system mm -hmm. and that, you know, you have Jeff Zucker of CNN and Les Moonves of CBS who've said openly that might have been bad for the country, but it was real good for mm -hmm. us and our bottom line. And you have a lot of talk about fake news and Trump's assault on news. But as I wrote in a column, the other war on news is the rollback now of net neutrality, the rollback of digital broadband access for millions of people, because these things matter. Elections mm -hmm. matter. Who controls the agencies? We need to fight for more open space. What you do helps in building a kind of alternative eco-media system mm -hmm. uh, is more doable. It is still tough. Cable news does drive things. And it is shocking sometimes to watch it because it is narrow and uh, still kind of doing the ratings game and is a disservice to people who seek something very different. So, you know, there there's all the fear, obviously, of Fox and Breitbart and now this new Trump.com. And I'm particularly fearful of local news being taken over by Sinclair Broadcast, the right-wing broadcast network. Uh, but we need to fight on our front to build out an independent, progressive media. And I think one that is independent but is also, you know, tied to movements in some ways, mm -hmm. building on their issues, covering movements in ways that s cable news mainstream never does. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I think luckily there is a generation that is not, can't afford cable news or doesn't want to invest in cable news. So they do watch things online and, and are overwhelmingly progressive. Um, at The Nation... You, you you do have diverse voices. You're a progressive of magazine, but uh, you have everybody from John Nichols to Joan Walsh, and it's a wide array of folks. Um, do you have a purity test? Is there an issue that everybody needs to agree with, or is there any sort the of The history of the nation, going way back, um, has been that the nation at its best is a forum for the range of left, progressive, liberal anarchist, conservatives with a conscience, a full panoply of voices. Um, there isn't a party line, but there are lead editorials unsigned, often written by the editor or other editors. You know, I think um, choice. I mean, there's, you know, um, there are a set of issues people agree on. There are a set of issues where within the family, there are disagreements. Um, you know, I will say on Russia, Russia's been an area of disagreement. Um, and, you know, Joan Walsh, um, good colleague, has been much more, the Bernie-Hillary fight was emblematic of larger disputes about mm -hmm. the nature of the Democratic Party, the nature of progressivism. We have a piece by Josh Holland on our site mm -hmm. about Medicare for all and why it's not the way to go. Right. I'm, I'm of the view that you know, I think we build Medicare for all, and I'm not in the weeds. I'm of, you know, we, it's aspirational, mm -hmm. and it's also shown to work in many ways. Mm -hmm. There's legislate, But I think it's good to have a range of views. Um, so there isn't a purity test. Mm -hmm. I think, um, listen, we used to have, I was editor when Christopher Hitchens was oh, a columnist. <laughs> so, you know, you had a columnist who evolved into support for the Iraq War, and he walked out, in a sense. We were happy to have his voice as a counterpoint to a majority set of alternative voices. 
During the Clinton years, he was a ferocious critic. Mm -hmm. You know, many progressives were, but he was, you know, of a kind of, of a certain. But we've had over the years a real contrapuntal mm -hmm. range on um, many issues, and that's the history of the nation. Do you find, uh, obviously, media has been has its ebbs and flows and ups and downs the past you know, decade, there was a media crisis, especially for print uh, in particular. Have you found this last year, two years, to be good for print media? It's a, t it's, you know, the nation at this moment is a media entity in a sense. Right. I mean, it sounds so corporate, but uh, we're not just a magazine. I mean, we are a full-fledged website, 24-7 mm -hmm. podcast. We have a book imprint. We do events. The magazine is an anchor. Uh, our cir circulation grew by 600% after the Goodness. Trump election, the wow. Trump bump. We do mirror that. You know, when George, George W., our circulation tripled. Partly, mm -hmm. I want to say not just because George W., but because of our opposition to the Iraq war and discontent mm -hmm. with mainstream media. So we're in a, you know, an interesting place, mm -hmm. but everything is tough. What are the most popular stories, the topics? Well, I'll, I'm very proud. This will, you know, but I'm proud of many things about the nation. And, but I'm proud that I'm the first editor, second woman editor, who brought in a sports editor. Oh, goodness. Dave Zirin. I love Dave Zirin. <laughs> I know nothing about sports. So. You know, so <laughs> I, I've grown up with a husband who's from Kentucky and Indiana, where basketball is the second religion, if not the first. I love, but I, would, I go to sporting events sometimes. And I think, you know, you want to talk to the, right. you know, and Dave has brought a sensibility mm -hmm. where, you know, he covers sports so that it opens up conversations people might not otherwise mm -hmm. have, like Colin Kaepernick or, you know, Absolutely. I mean, Selena. I mean, he's just, you know, he, he just has this, and he's very popular. That's great. Um, so, but I, I do think part of our role is to put ideas on the radar that aren't there. I'm proud that we've been fighting for Medicare for All mm -hmm. for many, many years. We warned against re repealing Glass-Steagall. Right. We did a special issue on the new inequality just a few weeks before Occupy erupted. So, I mean, there's... The importance of being an early warning journalistic radar or mm -hmm. alert system is important to us. And um, who knows where it's all going, but it's an extraordinary moment. I think I mentioned earlier the first issue of the right up here, nation. Yeah. Right behind us. The first line we of the did. first issue of July 6, 1865, the week was singularly barren of exciting events. I have not lived such a week. <laughs> I do not anticipate such a week. At the moment, every week feels like a year. Yes. So Every day feels like a week. Every <laughs> two so, days feels like a month under Donald Trump. And he's on vacation, so maybe it'll slow down just yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I don't bit. think so. Get his tweeting fingers. Well, thank you very much for it was you, such Nomi. a fantastic conversation about the state of the Democratic Party, politics, Russia. Really enjoyed talking yes. to you. Admire your work. I will. I greatly admire your work for years. Uh, I'm Nomi Constance Katrina Vanden Heuvel, the editor-in-chief of The Nation. Go to thenation.com. You know where it is. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys.